Hello and welcome to the Home Roots Podcast, where we feature cross-country check-ins with artists, producers, industry folks, community folks, house concert hosts, and impresarios who make up the interwoven network of music lovers, balladeers, and tune makers across the globe. The edge of blue Out there where the tears are falling On the edge of Was Roy Forbes with the title track of his new record, Edge of Blue. Welcome to the Home Roots Podcast. My name is Tim Osmond. I'm here with Jackson Haldane. Hey, Jackson. Hey, everybody. Hi, Tim. How's it going? Pretty good. I'm really excited for this interview today. Yeah, me too. Uh, we've been really lucking in with interesting folks, and Roy's another one of those people. I I don't know where this conversation's going to go. We never do, but uh, we'll, we'll open the floor to some sort of conversation, and We'll see where it goes. All right. 
Well, I'm really excited for this interview. Thanks for being with us, Roy Forbes. This is, uh, we've been really lucky so far on this Home Roots podcast reboot to be interviewing some really amazing, interesting, experienced people. And uh, you fit that bill really, really well. So thanks for being here. Happy to be here, Jackson. Thank you. I want to focus on your new record. And I wanted to ask a few questions about it. Um, particularly, we've been kind of focusing as we've been talking with folks on how the pandemic obviously has, has changed their flow and their plans. Um, I wonder if, was this a, a record that you were already well in the throes of making before this pandemic hit? And, and if so, what kind of disruption uh, did it specifically present to your recording process? Um, the record was finished mid-January. So the, the official release was February 21st with a sold-out show at the illustrious Rogue Folk Club in Vancouver. So we were just getting rolling when, when the lockdown occurred. So <laughs> it had been one gig. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So yeah. I, mean, I, I assume there were massive plans to tour the record and get it all out to the folks in a, in a sort of hands-on kind of way. That was clearly a major disruption. Yeah. Um, it, we, we had a bunch of dates booked. And uh, for sure, I mean, as much as I tour, I'm not, a, I'm not a touring fool like I used to be. But we did have a lot of dates that we had to uh, cancel or put off. And uh well, what can I say? I'm I'm in a big boat with a whole pile of other people. Yeah, that's ex- exactly right. There's a lot of people trying to figure out how to connect with an audience from the, the comforts of their home, and it's yeah. not so comforting when you don't know how to do what you do. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I'm uh, better. I'm better to get out on stage and uh, you know hop around for you know a couple hours and uh, throw the tunes out that way. That's my best way to connect with the audience. Exactly. Yeah, I think probably most of us would think that that was that's the way it's done, right? That's just the way yeah, we learn to yeah. do it and and yeah. how we learn to play this game. So, I'm curious how have you felt about the release of the album? Are are you satisfied that it's that it's getting some legs or do you really are you really discouraged with how this has held you back from being able to do what you do? What I decided early on is that You've got to play it by ear. I think discourage is not a word I want to use, especially if I'm singing home on the range. You've got to throw that in there. But, um, uh, you know, it'll all happen in good time. The record is um, it's ready to go anytime we can go. I mean, uh, the music is... Um, I try to make timeless music that will work now or might have worked... 50 years ago or might work in 50 years. So whenever we can get going on it again, that's when we'll get going. And, and what sort of, with this new record, what, what sort of themes did you feel you were playing with or, or maybe even themes you recognize now that you weren't intentionally aiming for? What's, uh, how, would you, how would you describe that, that aspect? Uh, I, I, yeah, I never approach a record with, I'm going to make a blah-bitty-blah record. I always say that the songs lead the dance. So I just started writing songs and, um, you know, I had a, a good burst starting in early 2016. And uh, that's what you hear on Edge of Blue is a, a pile of brand new songs. And um, it's really a record, I think, about pulling through. Um, 
you know, I've uh, had a few things happen in my life that have caused me to reflect in that way. And some of that has come out in the songs. And, um, you know, I've had people say to me, Roy, this is a great mental health album. <laughs> and uh, other people have said, you know, they quote the beating of your very own heart where I sing, uh, you put one foot in front of the other. And uh, a lot of us are doing that right now. So unintentionally, um, this is a record for right now. When you're fumbling in the dark and you just can't get a spark, check out the beating of your very own heart. And when you're all up in a bind and deep blue misery fills your mind, check out the beating of your very own heart. Oh, you COVID instructional manual without even knowing it was coming. I, I guess I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's really cool. I, I guess as a songwriter, when you work in batches where you create for a while and then you record and then maybe you perform, or maybe it's not quite the, that li literal, but I think probably songs find cohesion 
in the fact that they're born of the same frame of mind, right? If you write a batch of songs in two years and then record them, if you're on that kind of track, which the business has always sort of said, said that's the track we should be on, that I guess that in and of itself gives gives songs cohesion. So maybe when you're working with a batch of songs you've written recently, you're not trying so hard to figure out how they fit. Does, does that is that does that feel right to you? Um, kind of. Um, you know, like I say, I, I'm never intentional about putting an album together or about writing a song. I think if you're overly intentional right off the bat, then you're shooting yourself in the foot. Uh, you've got to be, you've got to be in there with the moment and, uh, you know, see where, see where it takes you. Uh, see where, what kind of a journey the song is going to take you on. It's like solving a puzzle, you know, you've got to, you've got this speck of an idea, uh, a phrase, uh, a piece of music or whatever. What is it? You know, and uh, if you can get through the initial burst of it without thinking about it too much, then then you've got something you can work with. Uh, so as far as, you know, an, an entire album goes, I mean, it, it, it kind of unfolded from Don't Let Go, the, the first song I wrote. Um, let me see the second one. I won't go through them all, but the second one was um, more than a little bit blue i believe and uh the third was the beating of your very own heart those were the the first three songs and they they kind of uh, set the direction but uh you know then then along comes lydia ann <laughs> you know total <laughs> rocker uh you know where did that come from one two three
but once in a while I'll have a lyric, you know, I'll have a title. Edge of Blue was a title that I had floating around for a couple of days. I, I get up every morning uh, before the world starts and I go to the computer and I type for about 20 or 30 minutes, you know, whatever happens to come into my head. And this one morning I got up and uh, the Edge of Blue title was there and I could hear I could hear stuff fluttering around in my head and and uh, on my way to the basement I grabbed the cassette and took it, had it with me by the computer because I uh, can't see anymore I have to have to use the computer darn it because I never used to use the computer at all but uh, anyway I uh, I, I'm not a religious guy, but it's almost like a holy moment, you know. It's, it's uh, it, this thing is happening, and you gotta try and grab it. So I'm hammering out these lyrics that are coming to me, and then I stop and I hum into the cassette recorder. And I, uh, I think within the half hour, I pretty well had it roughed out. Pretty well had Edge of Blue, and didn't have to do a lot to it after that. So, it, man, if you can grab a moment like that and be driven by a melody or a, a title or whatever, it's so magical. And it's, it's, it's really what living is all about. My favorites are the ones that seem to come from nowhere and just birth themselves. So, I, yeah, I can totally yeah. relate to that. Yeah, yeah. Heart Have Mercy, on the other hand, it also came from a title. And it took... Um, couple of years before it uh, before it it uh, got to where I thought okay I think I can do this so and I love that one equally as much as I do Edge of Blue so, so there's no rules no, no rule no 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 rules just get it however you can <laughs> absolutely ooh come on heart heart have mercy Climb out of your secret space I know you're there deep in the height of me Ooh, come on, heart, heart, have mercy Put those memories in the place Help me get back to the brightest side of
Tim, welcome to the conversation. Hello there. Hey, Tim. How are you? I'm Roy. Um, How are you doing? Hey, Roy. <laughs> nice. To, I've been quietly listening in here for the past uh, 10 minutes or so. I have to, I don't know if you guys have touched on modern times yet. As I we, said earlier, when the time get tough, a man turned to shellac. <laughs> that means 78s. <laughs> yeah. That's what I've been, you know, I have a radio show on CKUA. Roy's record room and I'm a record collector cool. and um, I have a huge collection of 78s and sometimes you buy them by the bushel so I'm going through them now I've had this time it's like it's been given to me okay well you you're here you're not out gigging you know um, so you know you can play a guitar a bit but go through your records and see what you've got see how that because fe- everything feeds my the main stem, you know, the records, you know, I've produced people over the years. I've, uh, you know, taught songwriting. I've done soundtrack for movies, but it's, it, I've, I've done it all in a totally selfish way because it all feeds the main stem, which is me and my music. Yeah. Right. If you had to guess how many 78s do you have? Too many. <laughs> Let's put it this way. There's 7,500 in the database, and that's just, you know, maybe a quarter of what I have. A database? So you must be very well organized, hey? Well, yes, but no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, anyway. But uh, we didn't come here to talk about 78s, but it is a part (laughs) of of what I do, and it's a part of, you know, what feeds me. I mean, records uh, have always fed... Uh, you know, and have uh, been the water in my musical well, so to speak. Um, you know, rubbing shoulders with people on a workshop stage has certainly been uh, a part of it. But for me, growing up in northern BC in the 50s and 60s, uh, I didn't have that many people to rub elbows with. So I was a record guy, and I still am. 
kind of want to dig a little deeper into that. How how does a a young boy growing up in northern BC in the 50s and 60s, how does he get access to folk music and obscure records? I mean, a lot of the stuff that if you're drawing on, I guess you you defined your music as timeless. So I'm I'm sure back catalog and older, like trad jazz or what, and, and all the way up to to the contemporary music of that time would have been important to you. Was that sort of the the record collection that you got to access was older stuff, and you weren't really able to get tap tap into the contemporary stuff? Or I I really want to know more about that because it seems to me my impression is that getting access to records wouldn't have been easy in that locale. Well, no, I mean, it was what was going, you know, the country music, uh, early rock and roll. Um, so country would have been like Hank Snow, early rock, uh, Hank Williams, uh, Ernest Tubb, you know, early rock and roll would have been Elvis, the Everly Brothers, um, uh, you know, Roy Orbison, uh, Gene Vincent, people like that. And um, what was what was on the radio, you know, the stuff that was on the radio. So you know, as far as so-called folk music goes, uh, and I say so-called because I, I mean it in the context of being in Dawson Creek in the late 50s, Tom Dooley, <laughs> hang down on your head, Tom Dooley, you know, uh, with the highwayman, Michael, row your boat ashore, uh, that the kind of stuff that was on the radio. Uh, Lefty Frizzell, Long Black Veil, even though it wasn't a folk song, sure sounded like one to me. Um, that was 59, I believe. Yeah, I have that on a 78. So that would have been 59. Um, and we would, I would hear folk music on the CBC, Alan Mills. He, uh, they, they would run a thing in, in school. He would come over to PA system and he'd sing Polly Wally Doodle and all, all those kind of things. Uh, I knew about the squid jig and ground because of Hank Snow. He recorded it in 1957 and dedicated it to all the people that he fished with back uh, in the Maritimes. So um, we would hear stuff in school. Maybe a teacher would have a record. Uh, I don't remember when I first heard Woody Guthrie or or Pete Seeger. Uh, I was more into the uh, into the Beatles and uh, you know all of that. The first deep folk I got into was Bob Dylan. Uh, the free uh, the first two albums I got of Bob is were uh, the Free Will and Bob Dylan. And blonde on blonde, so it's like a double, a double-barreled shot of uh, what today still is uh, up there in my top ten albums. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean that free will and record, you know, it influenced my guitar playing. My, when I first started to play guitar, the way he, the way he plays that uh, minor chord on Masters of War, I loved how he played Corinne Corina. Uh, Oxford Town, you know, things like that. I thought, I want to play like that. But at the same time, I wanted to play like Jimi Hendrix. So that, and and my first musical uh, outings was with a rock and roll band, The Crystal Ship, and we played, you know, Foxy Lady and Let Me Stand Next to Your Fire and you know, Beatle Tunes, Creedence Clearwater, The Who, The Stones. That That's my real roots. I really, uh, I really <clears throat> love your, your rhythm guitar playing. I, I think you really have uh, attention, especially, I mean, I'm, I was listening to the, the new record right before this, 
and just listening to each tune and and i love how the rhythm guitar is mixed right up there you can hear it really well yeah. and and the the diversity in the strumming that you're doing is is very uh different song to song it seems like like i i hear a lot of musicians that kind of do the same right hand strum all the time and it seems like you really pay attention to that um well you know i i have been um a solo performer most of my career uh when my band folded in 1970 i wanted the sound of the band to be there still so i you know i started to tap out the drum fills and you know snap out the bass lines and that was just with a flat pick and then when i started to finger pick in probably about 71 mid to late 71 uh then i had the flexibility of a loose wrist and um and my fingers you know and and um so all of that uh it, trying to create a band sound i don't want to stand up there and blandly strum a d chord i want to know i want the listener to know what else is going on in my head what the bass might be doing, what the drums might be doing, what another guitar might be doing. So it just kind of has developed over the years. And, um, you know, I have um, in, in my possession, I have a session of Edge of Blue that was done before we actually did the album. Uh, I went in and in just a few hours recorded the songs that would become Edge of Blue solo uh, because I wanted to know how the songs were and, you know, how they sat and, uh, you know, how the guitar parts worked and all of that. So uh, I may release that one day, the acoustic test drive of Edge of Blue, and then you can hear the guitar playing with all, all that other junk on it. <laughs> but thank you for, for picking up on the guitar playing. It's all of the uh, acoustic the acoustic rhythm part and vocal were done live with the bass and drums. Okay. So, so there's lots of, you know, there's little boo-boos all over the place in there, but, uh, but we managed to get, uh, to get it, to get it uh, live. And what I envisioned for the mix was that it would be acoustic bass and drums, and then we would carefully overdub things over top of it, kind of like spooning fudge on a, you know, a mound of ice cream to make a sundae, and maybe you put a little fudge on, maybe a little strawberry, you know, that kind of thing. So that's how I looked at doing the overdubs. But the core of the record is my guitar, basically my guitar playing. The bass player and drummer listened to what I was doing, and I had some ideas on what they could do, and uh, they took it from there and did their their own amazing stuff along with me.
Love that analogy of the ice cream. Yeah, yeah. Me too. Yeah, let's have some. We're yeah. taking a break, folks. <laughs> um, so apparently you have a tin of lozenges in your guitar case. Can you talk about that? So I have uh, I have this lozenge case. Uh, I have this lozenge tin um, in my guitar case. I've had it in there since about 1976. I was in Yellowknife, and uh, a fellow named Jim Murdoch was a uh, kind of a hot shot in that area, Yellowknife, Whitehorse. He had something to do with the Follies. He was, uh, he was involved with the Follies, the frantic Follies. And um, they were a part of one of my favorite folk festivals I've ever done, Ferrego. It's a legendary festival in many people's minds, including my own. We're all up in a little town called Faro Yukon, putting on a folk festival at the community center. 
And we had people from all over the place. You know, Bruce Coburn was there one year, Mimi Farina, Banana from the Young Blood, Roosevelt Sykes, John Hyatt was there one year, uh, and I was there. And Diamond Joe White and Valdi and Sherry Elric, Rick Scott. Um, I had lost my voice. And we were in Yellowknife, and I was about to open a show for Valdi. And I think I'd be in a bit of a prima donna, you know. Say, ah, I, don't, I don't think I can do the show, you know. I could barely talk. And uh, Jim Murdoch had a little chat with me. He's a theater guy, right? And uh, he, he knew some stuff I didn't know. Like, uh, he explained to me, he said, you know, people have planned their lives around this show. Some of them are driving, you know, maybe a hundred miles in. They book babysitters. They've done all this stuff. You can't not do the show. You know, he uh, he really tuned me in. I was pretty young, and uh, he he gave me a lot of wisdom that day. He shared his wisdom with me, and he went to the drugstore and he bought me the he bought me the tin of throat lozenges. He gave it to me, and. I took a few and I had some tea and honey and I went out and I did what is still one of the best shows of my life. Uh, I had to switch the keys to a lot of my songs way down because as I say, I could barely speak, but uh, I won the crowd over and uh, it, to me, it's still a legendary show. Uh, Jim died not long after that. And uh, that, lozenge case has traveled everywhere with me it, it was in la when i did my album it uh you know was in california when i was touring down there it was out in the maritimes it's been in my guitar case ever since that time it dented it smashed you have to use one of the couple of those broccoli elastics to keep everything in it i keep spare picks and uh you know pegs and different things in there and a couple of years ago, I met Jim's son in Atlin, and uh, I was able to show him this lozenge case. And it was a, a big moment in both of our lives, I think. I was so happy to meet him. He's a musician as well. And uh, you show him something that his dad had given me and give him a little of what his dad had given me. Just tell him about how his dad helped me out. So that's the story of that bent up poor old tin. Just like Bill Monroe's rattle in his mandolin. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. That's a really cool story. Thank you for sharing that. Well, what great advice too, you know, it's like everybody needs that person to come into their lives when you're a young performer. You do. I mean, he, uh, like I say, I was going to prima donna out and, uh, well, who knows? I mean, I might've come around, but he, he was so patient with me. He was not condescending. He just said, you know, here's the deal. You got to keep your end of the bargain. I'm trying to think where I met Mitch. Uh, it was probably Edmonton, maybe, because Winnipeg um, came later for me than some of the other festivals, Vancouver and Edmonton. But I did eventually get there. He was a sweet guy. He was, he was good to me. Um, I have good memories of Winnipeg, actually. Um, can I share a couple with you? I'm going to share Please. one. And one of them is being a, a work on a workshop with Bill Morrissey, who is uh, <laughs> like 
nobody could write songs like Bill could. They're just, um, they're hard to describe. Anyway, he has this song called These Cold Fingers. And uh, it, you know, it's about a guy who just can't seem to make things work out and all of that. And and there's the last verses about him and his dog. And, uh, you know, the song Old Shep. This puts old chap to shame. This is real, what Bill writes about in this last verse. And um, I think he was debuting the tune. Maybe he hadn't played it anywhere before. And I sat there beside him, and my mouth was probably hanging open in awe and respect as this uh, incredible piece of work came tumbling out of him. And... uh, you know, the the chorus is everything slips through these cold fingers like trying to hold water, like trying to hold sand. And I thought, I wish I'd written that. <laughs> that's, one, that's one Winnipeg story. And I that um, all of us left that workshop knowing we had to maybe go and work a little harder because of uh, what Bill did that day. But the other one is... Uh, it's one, It's a big festival memory for me, and I don't know anyone who was there might remember it. It was in the early 80s, I would say 83 maybe, and I was on the main stage. It was late Saturday night. I wasn't finishing the night, but I was, you know, third, maybe third to the end, second to the end. When does the sun go down there? I can't remember now. But anyway, I have a song that I do of Hank Williams. I interpret a Hank Williams song called I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry. I I arranged it way back in 1973 for slide guitar, open D tuning. And uh, it has a long mournful slide intro before the vocal comes in. So I'm up there and I've been, you know, you know, oh, up tempo, rah, 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 and then I, then I go into uh, So Lonesome I Could Cry. And I'm looking out over these, what, 20,000 heads? And I can see the horizon, and it looked like the sun is just about to dip. And I said very quietly, I said, turn around and look behind you. And I I continued to play, and the sun dipped. And then I went into my vocal. It It was one of those, almost like a holy moment.
bet we know a few people that would remember that one yeah yeah it was amazing anyway mitch um he was a great guy i mean he was full of enthusiasm and uh you know he encouraged me um he always thought i should be producing this person or that person yeah 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 you gotta produce it you know um he uh he gave me some good gigs i remember one they flew me out to open for tom paxton it was with uh, like a, a co-bill, uh, I always remember that. And uh, yeah, he was uh, right up. I don't remember the last time I saw him now. I think it may be Edmonton. But, you know, enthused about home roots and uh, just a guy. And uh, we all owe him so much. Yeah, we sure do. And Grant had mentioned that we should probe you on your vaudeville experience. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's very brief. It was a brief experience, but it was a fun one. When I was up north for the Atlan Festival in 2018, uh, I stopped in Whitehorse on the way home and uh, sat in with the Follies. And uh, when I had been up there, I think t in 2007, to do some work with a young songwriter by the name of Kate Weeks, um, I met Grant and Lyle, and I said, I, I said, you know, Connie Calder and I wrote this song called Saskatoon Moon, and it would fit perfectly in your follies. You know, you got a guy up there, he's a miner, he's kind of feeling lonesome for home, and um, they go, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I thought, well, okay, whatever. But uh, it stuck, and uh, so... Uh, they had a great band and a great cast and we did Saskatoon Moon and it was so much fun That Saskatoon Moon 
is calling to me it arises so bright in my memory i long to see it shine on the river below and walk on and on with this sweetheart i know to leave, try to make a new start, but how far can you go when you don't have your heart? I'd love to hear the meadowlark sing my favorite prairie tune, and hold your hand here, meet that Saskatoon. I thought the song fit perfectly. It was just as I imagined that it would be. The song is kind of a parlor tune. Connie and I wrote it to uh, convince our mother that we were doing the right thing with our lives by playing music as a career. And uh, it was written in the style of, you know, all those old tunes from the late 18, early 1900s. So it, it, fit, it fit in with the Follies. And now I can say that I was with the Klondike Follies, for a very brief moment. How's that, Grant? Perfect. Love post-production. You yeah. gotta. <laughs> well, I do it every week on Roy's Record Room. <laughs> How long have you been doing that show, Roy? Um, 14 years now. Yeah, it's been uh, 14 years every week. And, and you just play whatever you want? or I play whatever I want, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, and um, it's 98% record, so there's a lot of transferring involved from, you know, getting the vinyl and the shellac over to the computer and cleaning it up and all of that. So, oh, wow, you do all that too. I do all that. All wow. That. Yeah, okay. and I have an archive I dip into when I'm feeling lazy and don't feel like transferring. But that, uh, That's a really great way to digitize your library too, I suppose. It is, yeah. Yeah, just yeah. bit by bit, because that's yeah. a huge undertaking that needs to happen. Well, it is, yeah. And um, I've got, you know, I've got a couple of rare pieces in the collection, so it's good to have it digitized. I, I like to play the, the Canadian stuff, too. I've got lots of, you know, Canadian 78s, mostly country and, uh, you know, maritime fiddle music, a bit of rock and roll, and some that go further back. But I like to feature that stuff. 
for sure. Because you know, we don't, I mean, okay, you guys, who was Carrie Regan? Couldn't no tell idea. you. Uh, who, who were the sons of the saddle? Um, yeah, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but I'm just saying there's all this music back there that we don't know about. And uh, it's fun to, to throw something out, you know, Scotty Stevenson, possibly one of the first rock and roll records in Canada, Red Hot Boogie from 1954. Cool. Yeah, you know, he was from Edmonton. So a lot of this, was there a lot, a big scene in Western Canada for, for recordings? Like people are um, doing a lot of recording? well, he he would have done he would have done his probably in Montreal, at the Victor Studio. But there was a label called Aragon, um, out of Vancouver that recorded a lot of, a lot of people. The Rhythm Pals, who were on Tommy Hunter forever, they started on Aragon. Juliet, who was who had her own national TV show in the late sixties. 50s, early 60s, she started on Aragon. There was a label in Toronto called Rodeo, which, uh, which kind of did for, for the East what Aragon did for the West. And, you know, these folks are out touring in their cars, and they'd have a box of 78s in the back and hope they'd sell a few. Does it sound familiar? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. One guy apparently, Evan Kemp, he he got really into it. Um, he goes set up for a dance. He bought a hot dog stand. <laughs> He'd have somebody running the hot dog stand. This is in the early fifties. Yeah. So there's a lot of stories and um, and music out there that nobody knows about. What day? What day is your broadcast? It's on Sunday at one o'clock Mountain. Every have you, Sunday. Have you always been with CKUA? Is that like, did you get your start there? I did some broadcasting with CBC. I had an occasional holiday show called Snap, Crackle, Pop. It was a record show. And we managed to do it under the radar for about 13 years. Actually, we did a lot of Snap, Crackle, Pops. I had, wow. a co- had a co-host for that one. And um, I did the same thing, really. Uh, just played records that I liked. And, uh, and it was, it was fun. And then co-op radio, I've done a bit in co-op radio in Vancouver way, way back. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a side job, right? I mean, it's, uh, uh what I really do is, uh, what we're talking about, Edge of Blue, the new album. That's what right. I really do. Like you're saying, it all sort of folds back into the main artery, which is the music for you. Well, right? now I think you're both musicians. Am I correct? Yes. Yep. So, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, however you can pick up, uh, you know, uh, a phrase or a tip. It could be from a novel. It could be from a record you've heard. It could be from a conversation. Uh, but during, you know, I did a lot of producing over the years. I, I've, I wisely stopped that in uh the early 2000s, but, you know, I did records for Connie Calder and uh, Mark Perry and uh, a few different people like that. And uh, I was in the studio serving their vision, but at the same time, I, if I learned something, then, you know, I go, oh, let's try that thing we did on the Connie album four years ago, you know, where we put the mic here on the, you know, guitar or whatever yeah let's try that see if it works for this you know all those little things 
Hey, Roy, give us some details where people can find your record. Okay. Um, really hard to find right now, but we have a probably the best way. Well, first of all, I encourage everyone to go to their local uh, distillery, their music distillery, wherever that might be. There aren't that many left anymore, but there still are. So if, if you want to support your local, try that. And if you have trouble, then you can go to my website, uh, royforbes.ca. We have a link. You can e-transfer some money and we'll send you a physical copy. Um, Amazon is hit and miss right now with the pandemic. They're not buying a lot of new product and putting it up there. At least that's what my distributor tells me. Um, you can stream it or download it on all of the platforms. I think you're 21 of them. I forget what they all are, but you know, Apple Music, Spotify, all of that. So it's out there. And uh, if, if anyone's like me, you like to hold it in your hand. So uh, royforbes.ca would be probably your best bet, I think, if you want to get a hard copy. If you're not in Canada, email for details, because I don't know what the postage is like for... Uh, or other places in the world, or even if the mail is moving in the U.S. right now, but that's a whole other story. As long yeah. as it's not a, as long as it's not a ballot, I think they. Yeah, as long them. as it's not a ballot. Yeah. <laughs> I have to ask you, Roy, are you releasing your record on vinyl? No, I'm not, because um, to be quite frank, I can't afford to. Not right now, anyway. Uh, eventually, I think I might, because it's sequenced. Side one and side two. Oh, cool. In my mind, in my mind, once you hear Edge of Blue, that's side one over with. And then you flip it over and uh, Feeling Mighty Lonesome would come up. Now, I don't know how that would fit time-wise onto vinyl. But in my mind, once you've heard Edge of Blue, then you flip her over and uh, you've got Feeling Mighty Lonesome picking up side two. I should tell you, too, that as we recorded the record, I kind of worked with the sequence. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm like that. I'm, I love sequencing albums. I love making playlists. So uh, I kind of had a good idea where everything was going to fit. A few things hopped around, but uh, as as the record grew, so did the sequence. It's really important. I mean, and it's too bad that um, you know people use shuffle and all of that. I mean, it's a groovy thing to do, but. When you really want to hear what somebody putting down, so to speak, uh, you really owe it to the artist to start with cut one and go through the record, see what they see what they're up to. So much of the of the vision is in that, right? Is in that transition and and the flow and the overall experience, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I'm I'm a sequencer. I remember doing the first album. We had, even before sticky notes, we had little pieces of paper with bits of masking tape. And I just move those little things around, you know, just working on the sequence for that Kid Full of Dreams album back in 1975. That's good. Uh, that's good advice. You use sticky notes, actually. Um, oh, sticky never, notes. Never thought of that. <laughs> they rule. Are you yeah. kidding? Sticky notes for everything. For, for sure. Yeah. It's so refreshing to hear um, somebody uh, think of an album as a full presentation rather than just individual tracks. It's, um, you know, that's... I think how it should be really, you know, when you're so, putting together a whole presentation, it should all work together. It's well, a dying aesthetic for sure. 
Yeah, and and it's um, yeah. No, I I I love I love an album. Uh, I like to experience it. I I mean, when I was a kid, uh, for instance, when the Brown Band album, as we call it, when it came out, you know, it was it was a holy experience uh, with the help of a joint. But you know, we we had that album for two or three days before we all got together and listened to it. I mean, it was an event to listen to a new album. Uh, I don't know if people treat it that way now. I mean, unfortunately, I don't always treat it that way. Although I did for the Rough and Rowdy Ways for the new Dylan album, I tried to make sure that I could have time to just sit and listen to the whole thing through. But um, I'm I'm as guilty as everyone else. You know, you just pop it on, you're doing something else. You know, and uh, it it it's uh, it's really gratifying when you let yourself just sit and listen to a record put your phone down quit thinking about other things just listen and you know drift with the tide so to speak it's the best way yeah i feel like yeah. i feel like that's a great sentiment to end on gentlemen um all right thank you so much for your time roy this has been a wonderful conversation and uh well, thank you we've got some great insights about your your life and I, I think we've we've really you know dug into some of where you're coming from on this new album it gives people a little bit of insight into your process and and what they're digesting when they go to your website and they order it so uh, i i can't wait for home roots to get back to its mandate so we can start sending people back out on shows and i'm sure you're probably uh itching to see a stage one of these days too I'm hopefully for all our sakes that happens getting back there and stomping it out for sure yeah yeah, sooner the better. But it's got to be right. I'm not going to rush it. And, you know, like you say, you really uh, were in it. We just got to ride it through. We yeah. got to take care of each other, too. So that's a big consideration. We absolutely have to take care of each other. That is the most important thing. Yeah. Thank you, Roy. Thank you, guys. Take care, everybody. Take care. Thanks for tuning in, folks. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Roy Forbes. I know I certainly did. I am just digesting so many little bits of information from that one. 50 years in the business. I guess uh, a lot of stories come out of that guy and a lot of songs. This is his 11th album. 11. Wow. Well, I hope folks tune in again next week. Um, we look forward to having you back on the Home Roots podcast. We'll keep bringing you important folks from the music industry and their perspectives on traversing the new world we live in. See you next week. Bye.
Hey.